0: All right, we're in John chapter two. John chapter two this morning, Jesus is turning water into wine. It's his first miracle or his first sign, as John calls it. And what I want to show you from these verses is something to remember In your angst. It's something for you to tell yourself when you feel angst. This is something I want you to preach to yourself whenever your angst shows up. It's this Jesus reveals himself in his timing. So that we can learn all we can. And he reveals himself in his way so that we can see his glory. Jesus reveals himself to us in his timing and in his way so that we can learn all we can and so that we can see his glory. This is what Jesus is teaching Mary and his disciples as he starts his ministry with this first sign. First, we got to get the setting of the story. It tells us this in verses one and two. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. We're going to have a wedding. That's the scene, a wedding in a village called Cana. It's not a super big place, not a super nice place. Necessarily, but it's definitely bigger and nicer than Nazareth. So, for those in Nazareth, this is kind of going to their version of the big city. And it's likely that this is a family wedding. It's a family wedding. Those never go bad, do they? These are always good. There's never any awkward or weird things that happen at the family wedding. And one of Jesus' cousins is probably getting married, which is. Why Mary is so involved, as we'll see in this wedding, why she's so concerned with how it goes. Perhaps she's helping one of her nieces or one of her nephews or one of her brothers, one of her sisters in their wedding. History tells us that the wedding feast in this culture would have lasted seven days. Now, I know we cannot imagine such events, not even me, and I love weddings. Particularly receptions that are catered very well. Stay for hours. I'll be the last guy on the dance floor. Just give me another one of those meatballs with a toothpick. I love those. But even I will not be showing up for seven days. In fact, I'm not enduring seven hours of your wedding. We don't even have a a category for this, but you you kinda just have to use your imagination a little bit. This was a family reunion, this was a town festival, and a wedding all wrapped up into one in this culture. Another thing about this culture, it's much different from ours, these weddings were taking place in what was called an honor or shame culture. Literally, in this culture, you were either honored or you were shamed. Very little in between. Like, I'll just put it to you this way. No big deal was not a huge category for them. It's either a big deal or it doesn't exist. That's kind of how they rolled. So that's the setting. It's a big event in an honor or shame culture. And here's the problem. They're afraid to be shamed. We see this in verse three, where we see their problem of angst. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, we could be tempted to read that as, oh, well, they ran out of wine. That's not how the original audience would have read this text. It's not how the early church would have read this text. Remember, no big deal is not a category for them. Verse 3 is written in a little bit of a plain way. but It's because John assumes that you know that this is a big deal. Like, one time, I did a wedding for this couple, young couple, and the father of the bride was late for the wedding rehearsal because of work. I think we all can see, like, that's not cool. Right, like this has been planned for nine months. You can't take a vacation day, you can't get a little time off. Right, you're not the president, dude. You're selling insurance, and you're gonna need insurance because the bride is really upset. Right, your daughter is coming after you. Right, like he's we're all there, we all made it. It's not our daughter, and 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 yet we're all waiting on this guy coming out of the office, coming from a deal, coming out of work. He's getting there late. Everyone, especially the bride and her mom. No, that's not cool. Right? And that's sort of the attitude at this wedding. Like, you told us about this thing a year ago. We all traveled in from far-away lands, on camels. How did you not make sure to have enough wine to spare? Now honestly, I could see how this situation could be out of their control. Right? You don't know how many people are coming. Right? Maybe the grapes weren't growing real, real well that year. Um, right? uh, maybe some dude, some family there is taking way more than a normal share, OK It's not like we've ever seen that at a wedding. It could not be their fault. Right? But it still would have brought their family shame. This would have been a cause for great angst in the family. And here's what angst is. It is any time you have to ask questions like these. What are we going to do? What are we going to tell people? What's going to happen? It's angst for the family. It's angst for Mary. Perhaps some of you are here and you're feeling angst. Right? You're asking these questions. You're in a season of angst. And I want to tell you that that is okay. Bring all your angst with you to church. It is all welcome here. And we all sympathize. Like everyone knows the pain of being in a moment or even a season of angst. And man, that's a tough place to be. But it's also a really interesting place to be. Because angst is just strong enough of an emotion for you to reach out to Jesus. In fact, maybe that's why you're here today. You're trying to reach out. You are looking for Jesus to help you. And when we start reaching out for Jesus, things will eventually start to happen. But probably not the things you're thinking would happen or should happen at least not at first. See, one thing that angst does is it causes in us a great misunderstanding of the type of savior Jesus is, right? Instead of good news, we think Jesus is here for our good ideas. So rather than preaching the good news to our angst and being settled in Jesus, we pray about our good ideas out of angst and try to control Jesus, We see this a little bit in Mary. Mary's got some angst, so she reaches out to her son Jesus, but it's likely based out of a misunderstanding of who he is. It's a desire for him to be who she was thinking he should be. We see this in their conversation in verses three and four. And her misunderstanding kind of comes to light. Verse three they ran out of wine, and the mother of Jesus said to him, They got no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I have a question. Does this seem like a strange back and forth to you? It does to me. I'm probably not preaching these verses on Mother's Day. right? are going to stick with Hannah or something simple. Because it's a little bit of an odd exchange between Jesus and his mother. Jesus almost seems to be being a little harsh with his mom at first glance, doesn't he? what's going on here? Well, it's not that he's being harsh with her, but he is challenging her good ideas, which are actually based in misunderstanding due to her angst. She, he, he's hoping that she will ditch her good ideas and see something better, the good news. And it becomes clearer as you peel back the gospel of John and what John is doing, especially when you know that John was the one who wrote last. So he writes after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John writes assuming you know what Matthew and Luke tell you about Mary. And what they tell you about Mary is that she believed the word spoken to her at the birth of Jesus, that she heard that he was going to be the Messiah, and she rejoiced, and she was glad and overjoyed at that news. After all, she was a virgin who had a baby. I mean, that would instill some faith and some belief. I think what you're saying is true. And a savior has come. And this is good news. She knew that someday, someday, what was revealed to her in the virgin birth would be revealed to everyone in the whole world. And maybe she is thinking, now is the time. Because what had just happened? What have we been talking about for a few weeks in John chapter 1? John the Baptist just called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus, since birth to this point, 30 years of obscurity. I mean, he's not married. He has no kids. He's not wealthy. He's blue collar. He has not gotten a scholarship to Jerusalem University. This guy is not, I mean, she must have been a little bit dazed, right? Like, hey, angels show up to his birth. Wise men, kings from the east come and give him presents. He's only two. They give him gold bars, frankincense and myrrh, right? There's all this, and then silence but then there's this rumbling, right? There's been tell that a voice appeared at his baptism and said, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. In fact, there's reports that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And we saw this the last couple of weeks. He's even got six dudes following him around. Quit, his, quit their jobs and followed him around. And they're calling him rabbi. And a couple of them have called him the king of Israel. So Mary her attention is peaked. This sounds like the stuff I was hearing when he was born. This sounds like the stuff I heard 30 years ago. Maybe today's the day. Maybe it's finally time for the grand reveal of her son as Messiah. And she's thinking, it would also be really convenient for me because I got this wedding issue. Here's what I'm saying. It's very possible that Mary, when she comes to him and says they've run out of wine, she is really saying, maybe now's the perfect time for the grand reveal of who you really are, partly so that everybody knows and you get the glory, but also partly, because it would really help me out, it'd be really convenient for my purpose that you kind of you know, show up, distract everybody, I don't know, maybe call down wine from the heavens, sort of an Elijah thing, only a little less violent, and it'd be awesome. And would really, really work out for me. Mary's likely asking him to reveal himself, his power, do something, but to some extent, it's for her convenience and her purpose. It's likely that she's getting a good idea Here's what we can do, spurred on by her angst, but she is confused with the good news. And that's probably why he has this challenging response. In verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with what I'm doing, what I've my purpose, what I'm sent to be? My hour has not yet come. I think what Jesus is getting at is she wants Jesus to do something great according to her terms and conditions. She wants Jesus to be something great according to how she views greatness. So he calls her woman instead of mother. And this corrects her thinking. One uh, guy I studied said it this way. In this moment, he's declaring he's no longer the son of Mary. He's now the son of man. It is not time for him to obey her, but for her to obey him. You see, in our angst, we often want Jesus to obey us, when really the deal of salvation and discipleship in Christ is you obey him. He's also communicating that what is important now as he kicks off his ministry is his view of what is great. Not our view of what is great. What's to be accepted is his terms and conditions because he alone knows what he has come to do. He knows who he has come to be. And what's important now is that purpose, his purpose. And his purpose is much bigger than good ideas, it's good news. Which is why he says, My hour has not yet come. Like, we need to know what that means. My hour has not yet come. Why does he say that? Well, he says it a lot. It's like Jesus is obsessed with this idea, this word hour. In fact, the word hour appears 24 times throughout the Gospel of John. He says it a lot. Someone's hour is the moment where it is revealed just how good they are at something. Okay, so think about, right, you're at home and you're watching, I don't know, let's say you're watching The Voice, and I know you all watch The Voice, okay? I know it's church. Don't be all pretendy. We all know you're watching The Voice. I, uh, I'm reading my Bible. No, you're not. <laughs> I, I know. I stalk your Facebooks. A bunch of sinners in this room. <laughs> but I love you, and I'm one of you. So, you're watching The Voice, right? And some girl comes out from a small town. She's you know, got this real unassuming manner about herself. And the judges, they're all saying all these skeptical things. They look so skeptical. And the music starts and she's kind of, you know, you can tell she's super nervous and then she starts singing. I don't know, like don't stop believing or something like that. And this raw talent just exudes from her and there's not a dry eye in the crowd. Everybody's tearing up, and the judges stand up, and they are clapping, and they are overwhelmed. This is her hour. We now all know how good she is at this, how good of a singer, how good she is. It's now been revealed. That's her hour. That's the way the word hour is used in the book of John when it comes to Jesus. It's Jesus' grand reveal of his work as the Messiah, the King of Israel. It's the climax of the story where we see just how good of a Savior Jesus is. And Mary's thinking, I got a good idea. This could be your hour. Yep, that works for me. It's going to tackle the wine issue. But she's misunderstanding. She's thinking so small. And it's not because she's sinful. The scriptures assure us Mary is a godly, godly woman. And it is not because she's simple, right? We don't, we're, we're not half the disciple Mary was. This is a, a powerful person who trusted and followed, right? It's just, she's human. She's human, And she doesn't yet know that the hour Jesus has come for is gonna be for much bigger purposes, not just to save us from social penalties, to save us from sin's penalty. For the wages of sin is death. Jesus' hour has not yet come, but when it does come, which starts in chapter 12, you'll see it's this hour in which he bleeds out on a Roman cross, crushing the head of the serpent once and for all. Amen? That's his hour to save us from Satan and sin and death and hell. And he is tipping her off to this. He is tipping us off to this, to this fact. Jesus came into the world for a very specific and a very big reason, much bigger than whatever difficulties we find ourselves in today. That we think he needs to hurry up and relieve He came to be our savior. He came to save all of us and he came to save us from our greatest angst, the angst of sin. It is actually because he saved us from our greatest angst that we even have the luxury to worry about things like weddings. We don't have to worry about eternal life. So we get all this time to worry about this life because of the good news he brought us. And that is why he came, to save us from our greatest enemies, to free us from ourselves. And the destruction we've been bringing since Genesis chapter 3, I mean, you just got to know that's what Jesus is doing, is saving the lost, is redeeming the world, is building a church and a kingdom for himself that will last forever. We got to be careful not to confuse our good ideas with the good news of Jesus. Now, that is what is in print here. But there is something else implied here. And what's implied here is that though he has come for something far greater than the wedding at Cana, that Mary's still going to be taken care of in the end. Jesus has come for something much bigger than your current angst, whatever it might be. But you'll still be taken care of in the end. Here's what he does for Mary in her angst. Here's what he does for us in our angst. When we're asking questions like what are we going to do and what are we going to tell people and how's it all going to happen, Jesus reveals himself to us in his timing and in his way so that we can learn all we can and so that we can see his glory. You say, where exactly does it say that? Well, like I said, it's not in the text, but it is implied in the text. It is the tension, if you will, of the text. It's implied by the awkward exchange he just had with Mary, followed up by the next verse, verse five. His mother said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That is great advice when it comes to Jesus. Thank you, Mary, for this message. Whatever he says to you, do it. Novel idea. Honestly, one of the best sermons I ever heard. Mary should get an A in preaching class, right? Really nailed the application on that one. Whatever he says to do, do it. If you're paying attention, there has to be some sort of gap purposely left in the conversation. Because he says, woman, that's got nothing to do with me. That's not what I'm here for. My hour has not yet come. But then he must have said, Something to where Mary knows in the end she'll be taken care of. Because she goes over to the waiters and the waitresses and he says, just do whatever he says. It's gonna be strange. It's Jesus, right? It's gonna be it's gonna be mysterious, it's gonna be time-consuming, it will not make sense until the last second. In fact, with Jesus, sometimes it doesn't make sense till after the last second, right? Go ahead and Google the resurrection on that one, right? You're like, what? You're just going to die on us? It's like, give it a minute, right? Jesus is fascinating like that. You're like, you know, we love stories where a guy makes the winning shot at the buzzer. Jesus has a totally different brand. He makes winning shots way after the buzzer. It's like, what? <laughs> That's Jesus. And here's what's going on is that her heart is settling, This is the settling of Mary's heart, because what she's doing when she says, just do whatever he says, she's accepting Jesus on his terms, terms that don't even make sense to her yet. She's asking the servants, and she's asking us, accept Jesus on his terms, which is also known as faith, saving faith, sanctifying faith, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. So how are you doing with that? Are you at angst with Jesus because he won't be who you want him to be? So many people are. So many people are, man. People who lean liberal, they're angsty because Jesus says some conservative things and people who are really conservative are very angsty because Jesus says some kind of liberal sounding things and everybody's trying to put Jesus in their box. This is who he should be. This is who he would be. This is who, this is who he is, the way I think of him. And yet he blows all of our categories up, doesn't he? In fact, that's one of the ways I know if I'm following Jesus. If I got one guy calling me hyper-grace and at the same time this guy's calling me a legalist, I'm like, okay, I'm probably in the lane, right? Everybody's trying to be like, here's what Jesus is. Here's who Jesus is. This is what he's like. And we rarely let him just be who he tells us that he is, which blows your mind. And that's kind of the point, Right, this is why it's faith. This is why it's God. This is why it's much bigger than us. Faith. Are you living by faith? Are you accepting just who he really is? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What's, who is he? Faith is refusing to make Jesus into the Savior you think you want and just accepting the Savior that is. Faith is when we transfer our prayer life from trying to get Jesus to do whatever we say to a prayer life that's focused on, help me just do whatever you say. Whatever you say. A lot of time in our angst, the first thing to go is just the simple obedience. Just do whatever he says. Mary's message is the first thing. In our angst, that's the last message we want to hear, right? Just do the things he tells you to do. Right? Read your Bible. Be thankful. Be patient. Love your wife as Christ. Love the church. Witness. Just do whatever he says. A lot of times, that's the first to go in our angst. But what's interesting is when you will believe in him for who he is, and when you will accept him for who he reveals himself to be, and you resign to just do whatever he says in books like the book of John, it is with this attitude that your angst starts to settle. Because somewhere in the midst of all that obedience, he is going to assure you that somehow you'll be taken care of in the end. That brings us to the lesson we're here to learn today. Jesus reveals himself in his time and in his way so that we can learn all we can and that we can see his glory. Check out Jesus' timing, verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. How many of you, when Mary says, just do whatever he says, you were kind of hoping Jesus would not say something like that? First of all, I do not see how all this water helps us with the wine issue. Did he misunderstand? Did he hear the prayer correctly? Second of all, these things are huge. In fact, one of our Griggs guys actually got to go over to Israel last summer, and he sent me some photos of these, these water pots Jesus would have been pointing to. We do have a couple pictures of them because I just want you to see this. right? Uh, massive totally made out of stone. I mean, we're talking incredibly heavy, holding up to 30 gallons of water, and there are six of these bad boys sitting there. Uh, I just want you to know, that takes a second to fill all that up, especially in a culture that is like, what, 1,800 years away from the invention of the hose? (laughs) Like, these, like let me just tell you, 180 gallons of water doesn't just show up when you need it in this culture, right? Like, you got to go to the well. You got to get all the water that you have in the household. I mean, it takes time. This is not a quick fix to the wine issue. And it's like, why not, Jesus? <laughs> why not a quick fix? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why does sometimes Jesus give people a quick fix like, he touches them, and boom, no leprosy. It's like he's a drive-through. Then other times, Jesus is like the DMV, right? <laughs> Have you noticed this? Like, sometimes he fixes it over a long and tedious process, right? It's like, it's, it's, why, you, why do you do that? As Jesus, he reveals himself in his timing, and it's so that we can learn something. When, I just want, know this, know this, okay, get this. When Jesus is doing something for you over a long period of time, instead of quick, right, what he is doing is showing you something you need to learn. So if you're in some pain, try to go learn that thing because there's something he is teaching you. That you gotta, you got to know before you move on to the next phase of following Jesus. It could be that he is teaching you, again, what's really important in life. It could be that he is teaching you to relax. That's a good word for some of y'all. It is that he is teaching you a new way of living. It, it, whatever it is, I'll tell you this. In the middle of all that, he is always teaching you more about the good news. Like right here in this text, we learn so much from how Jesus performs this miracle. I mean, there is so much symbolism and instruction right here in these very verses. I mean, right here, what do we learn? We learn in this miracle that the old covenant is now being superseded by a new and better covenant. He has them use old covenant purification water jars. These are originally for the Levites washing themselves before they went into the temple to do their work. Eventually in Jewish culture, everybody had one of these or six of these and they washed whenever they were ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean under the law to purify themselves. So they had to wash themselves all the time Because we're always unclean, it seems, under the law. And yet this water never really purified anybody. Especially not at the heart level. But Jesus is fulfilling the old covenant with his work. These jars are filled with water that can't cleanse. And he turns it into wine, which in the book of John is Clearly, a symbol of his blood that he is about to shed. And he is, in other words, teaching all of us who will read about this miracle for eternity to come that the new and true way to purify yourself from the uncleanness of sin is by washing yourself with the blood of Jesus. That's purification that lasts, that's purification that works. And we've been taught this by the time consuming process Jesus took to reveal himself in this miracle. Jesus will reveal himself to you in his time so that you learn something. And he'll reveal himself in his way so that he gets all the glory. Look at verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. He said to them, draw some water out now. Take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he didn't know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to them, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, but you've reversed the order right? Usually it's when the guests have well drunk, then we set out the inferior wine. But you've kept the good wine till the end, till now, to the last. So after they fill these 30-gallon water jars, uh, purification jars with water, Jesus somehow uses his power and his divinity to transform the water and to make it into wine, And he takes that wine or asks them, the servants really, to get that wine and to give it out. Okay. So they're going to go give it to the master of the feast, who was like the MC for the wedding, right? He's the guy who he announces every course of the meal. He announces all the guests and their names. He announces, you know, what's up next and what's coming up in the event. And he just sort of keeps the crowd involved and engaged, I'm kind of guessing that this guy, this master of the feast, I bet he was getting a little angsty himself, right? It's probably been a while since he's seen a waiter or waitress out there because they're all filling up six stone water jars. People are probably coming up to him, asking him for refills, and he doesn't even know where to send them. I'm I'm guessing he's sweating a little bit himself, and then all of a sudden, a sea of waiters come out from the kitchen, it seems, and they're passing out the wine, and the master of the feast gets his, and it's time for him to announce that, hey, I know many of you have been looking for a refill. It is here, And he takes a sip and he is shocked and he is astonished, is astonished because it's actually like really, really good. Like it's almost a little too good. Like you ever have food that's suspiciously good? Like what are you putting in this? I've been here four times this week, why? You ever felt that way? I do, about the taco truck by my house. I do. I mean, it is, what is so good about that? What do you, it is on White Horse Road, so it's very sketchy, but very delicious. Like, what is he sneaking into these tacos? I, that's kind of the, the, the general, it's like the master of the feast is almost like, what? That's, there's something going on here right? That is suspiciously good. It's so good. He can't even tell. This is a master of the feast. This guy would have been paid to do this. This is an expert. And he doesn't even know. He's like, what, what, what year is this? What grape is this? What, whatever. I don't know. But what, what, he doesn't even know where this is coming from. He can't put his finger on it. He is so impressed with it. He brings the bridegroom up, which would have represented the family. And he says, your family has done what no one else does. They have saved the best wine for last. So the family, oddly, instead of shame, gets glory. Jesus takes our shame and he turns it into glory. Instead of a big deal in a bad way, their trial... Their angst. Jesus answered it in such a way that it becomes a big deal in a good way. You ever seen Jesus do this for you? The very thing you thought would take you out gives you life. Only Jesus can do stuff like that. And so Mary and all her angst is eventually taken care of. Perfectly, perfectly taken care of. It was a nail biter till that last second. But sure enough, Jesus took care of her. He's going to take care of you. He just doesn't take care of her in her way. He's not going to do it your way either. He does it his way. Her way was he would come to the front of the ceremony at Cana, And possibly the whole town is there, and he would declare himself to be their king and perform a very public sign. But he didn't. He stays behind the scenes. Only his disciples and the servants and Mary really know what happened that day. He does things that way so that he actually ends up with the glory. Look at verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This sign was the first sign Jesus did, did it for his glory. This glorifies Jesus in so many ways for those who are ready to see his glory for the servants, for the disciples, for us. A lot of this he did for us, those who would believe after his ascension. We were on his mind at the wedding feast of Canaan. He gets all the glory. I mean, for the wedding feast of Cana, he gets the glory in our church. We see the wedding could have never gone on without him. Right, we, we see it could have never gone on without him and we glorify him, especially now, especially as the church, because we see that we could have never been the bride of Christ without him and without his work, without the blood he shed, establishing a new covenant for us. He gets the glory in the church. He gets the glory in our lives. We see that Jesus here is pro-joy, pro-celebration. He doesn't just provide enough food and wine. He doesn't just provide adequately. He provides way more than we could ever ask or think, better than we could ever imagine. So we praise him and we thank him and we worship him in our lives. I mean, look at all the great things he's provided for you in abundance from family to food to fun. He provides abundantly good wine in abundance, and it's all symbolic of what he's doing in life for the life of a believer. Later in the book, you'll see the apostle uh, John puts it this way. He came to give us life and life more abundantly, or another way you could say it is he came to give us life and life to the brim, just like these six stone water jars are filled up. And it doesn't mean he fills us with health and wealth and prosperity like some of our friends on TV think, but he fills us with his life, obedience, answers to prayer, fellowship in the church, serving the poor. What gives us more life than serving the poor? Nothing. And yet that was his thing. He's like, this is what you got to be doing if you want life. And sure enough, you serve the poor, you get life. He gets glory in our lives. He gets glory in the things that are yet to come, doesn't he? This, it wasn't his hour. His hour was yet to come. His time was coming. You see, if Jesus had done what Mary had suggested, some giant, some public miracle, some public gesture, his whole story would have changed. His whole story, like, he probably wouldn't have gotten to the cross to die in our place and for our sins and rise again from death. Because people do not typically crucify really nice, good wedding planners. It's not enough. What he had to do was that he had to live a life that showed the right people, how wrong they were, so that they would betray him and arrest him and crucify him and lay him down on a Roman cross where he who knew no sin could become sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was all for his glory, things that were yet to come where he would rise from death and ascend to heaven and send the Holy Spirit for his bride. We see in this text, the host tells us the best wine was saved for last. And that speaks to us, especially in this age of grace. Because we have another book written by John, the Revelation. And we see that John writing about this wedding in John chapter two is ultimately pointing us to a much better and bigger wedding that is yet to come, a wedding that takes place in heaven. At the end of time, when there is no more clock on the wall and we have eternity, this wedding is the marriage supper of the lamb where we finally see Jesus in all of his hour, in all of his Power, where we see the best that was always yet to come, and it is finally here, His glory in abundance forever and ever. It is that that wedding, that our angst will all be gone, because we will finally be past our temptation to use Jesus for our purpose, and we will finally understand and submit to His timing and His ways. And we will finally fully accept him on his terms for who he really is without any sin tainting our view of him. And we will simply have all of him exactly as he is and we will be like him as he is in his glory and for his glory, we will be glorified forever and ever. Hallelujah. This is good news. The best is coming. He is saving the best for last. So what do we do today? Bring all your angst to Jesus. Trust him with it. Accept him for whoever he shows himself to be in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And just do whatever he says. And all God's people said let's pray. Jesus, we're going to sing to you three more songs because you're so good. Thank you for the wedding at Cana. Thank you for the wedding that is to come, the real wedding, the ultimate wedding, the wedding to end all weddings, where we as the church, blood bride of Christ, come to celebrate, to sing of your glory forever and ever and ever. Jesus, thank you that you take what could never purify us, our religion, our attempts, our work, and you turn it into something that can purify us by dying in our place for our sins, giving us the blood of Christ that washes all sin away. Thank you that you've made a way for us to really be purified through the cross at a heart level, through the spirit. I pray if anyone here is not saved, that they would repent of sin, cast it away, and that they would just place themselves in the mercy of your hands, knowing that you take great care of sinners, that you rescue, that you save, that you redeem. And I pray that those who are saved would give their angst to you again. In Jesus' name, amen.